Turn with me to Job chapter 30. In the Church Bible, it's page 530, or the large print Bible's page 820. And we're going to take the time to read all of chapters 30 and 31. Just to remind you of the context where we are in the book. In chapter 29, Job has just described his past life. And it turns out Job had a great life in the past. And it was an effective life. We learn that he was greatly blessed by God in a whole lot of different ways and he was a great blessing to others. So Job didn't just soak up God's blessing. He didn't just sit on it. He poured it back out to comfort and to help and to lift up other people, particularly needy people. That's how it used to be for Job. But now, Job goes on to describe his present situation, beginning in chapter 30, verse 1. But now, they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had gone from them, haggard from want And hunger, they roamed the parched land, in desolate wastelands at night. In the brush, they gathered salt herbs, and their food was the root of the broom bush. They were banished from human society, shouted at as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in the dry stream beds, among the rocks and in holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes and huddled in the undergrowth, abyss. A nameless brood, they were driven out of the land. And now, those young men mock me in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. On my right, the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me. No one can help him, they say. They advance as through a gaping breach. Amid the ruins they come rolling in. Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me in the mud. And I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God. But you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. 
Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre is tuned to mourning. And my pipe to the sound of wailing. I made a covenant with my eyes. Not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above? Our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked? Disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales. He will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind another man's grain and may other men sleep with her. For that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. It is a fire that burns to destruction. It would have uprooted my harvest. If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what then will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, but from my youth I reared them as a father would, and from my birth I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments, and their hearts did not bless me for warming them with the fleece from my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of His splendor, I could not do such things. If I put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, you are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hands had gained. If I have regarded the sun in its radiance, or the moon moving in splendor, so that my heart was secretly enticed, and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. If I rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune, or gloated over the trouble that came on him, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by invoking a curse against their life. If those in my household have never said, who has not been filled with Job's meat? But no stranger had to spend the night in the street, for my door was always open to the traveler. If I have concealed my sin, as people do, by hiding my guilt in my heart, because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans, that I kept silent and would not go outside, 
Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. If my land cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I have devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, then let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. This is God's word. Before we try to understand this, to help us understand it, I want us to think about two statements from the New Testament. The first statement comes from the end of Luke's Gospel. This is after Jesus had been crucified. And Luke describes two of Jesus' followers walking away from the city of Jerusalem. At this point, they are depressed and they're disillusioned. They had put very high hopes in Jesus of Nazareth. They had thought he was God's redeemer. But they'd watched him be sentenced to death. And then crucified to death. They'd heard him cry out to God from the cross. But God hadn't answered. He hadn't rescued Jesus. He'd let him die. And so, Jesus couldn't be God's redeemer. Could he? God would never ignore the cries of a righteous man. Would he? He would never let his perfect, beloved son be falsely accused and condemned and unjustly killed. Would he? Luke tells us as these two disciples are shuffling along with heavy hearts, the risen Jesus appears to them. Now they don't recognize him at first, but he walks with them. And this is what he says. How foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's easy to skim over those words. Or if we're familiar with them, it's easy to think the main point here is that the scriptures talk about Jesus. But look what Jesus actually says. He says, It should be no surprise that God would allow his Messiah to suffer. It should be no surprise that God would let his beloved son be treated unjustly. Even to the point of being executed as a criminal. Why should that not be a surprise? Because the scriptures spoke about it. And the scriptures here mean the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus says to these disillusioned disciples, what you saw in Jerusalem was not a change of direction for God. God has a habit 
of achieving glorious things through undeserved suffering. When those who are loved and precious to God go through the ringer, that is not a glitch in the system. That is part of a pattern. Jesus says, God has been doing things that way long before it happened to me. Look at the Old Testament and you will find the path of undeserved suffering is a very well-traveled path. God has been doing things that way for a long, long time. Sometimes, Jesus says, that is how God treats his friends. And his very best friends are no exception to that. You should have known that, Jesus says, from the Old Testament. That's the first thing for us to notice this morning. According to Jesus, undeserved suffering is not an oversight on God's part. It's not a sign that God is absent. It's one of the ways God works. And second, undeserved suffering doesn't just have a minor part to play. No, it is right at the heart of God's wise plans. It is a central part in God's purposes. In one of his letters to Christians in the city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul wrote this, and we read it together earlier. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. A few verses on, Paul says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, God's wisdom totally upends human wisdom. And at the heart of God's wisdom is the undeserved death of his righteous servant, Jesus Christ. Christ crucified defies human wisdom. But it's right at the core of God's wisdom. That is where God did his most powerful work. When he allowed his beloved son to be falsely accused and wrongly treated, God was doing something more wise than human wisdom can understand. And more powerful than human power could ever match. So two claims from the New Testament. What happened to Jesus was part of a pattern, Jesus said. It is sometimes how God treats his friends. And then, that pattern of undeserved suffering is where God achieves amazing things in the universe. It's where his wisdom and power are at their greatest. It has a central part in God's purposes for the universe. Well, what does this have to do with Job? 
Well, at the beginning of this book, God declared his deep affection for Job. He said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? When God calls someone his servant, it's a sign of great prestige. It means God places great value on that person. They're my servant. And God went on to say, there's no one on earth like my servant Job. Job is loved by God and he's precious to God. And chapter 28 of this book told us, the wisdom at the heart of this universe belongs to God. He knows the deep purposes that lie behind our experiences. Often those experiences make no sense to you and me. But God sees the whole picture. There's a perfect order to it, chapter 28 said. And only God knows it. Wisdom belongs to God and Job is precious to God. We know those things. But as we read this book, we are bewildered by what we find. Why? Because we see God's beloved servant Job going through hell in this book. I think that's a perfectly appropriate word to describe Job's experience. He has lost everything. And the worst part of his loss is that God himself seems to be gone. Job has lost all sense of God's presence. And isn't that what hell is? In the chapters we read a few moments ago, Job describes his hellish experience. First he says, the highest one becomes the humiliated one. The Job of chapter 29 really was the highest in his place and his time. The beginning of the book described him as the greatest man among all the people of the East. And what we heard in chapter 29 bore that out. He didn't just have a high position, he had the very highest one. He was the chief. He dwelt among the people as a king dwells among his troops. But now, he is the humiliated one. In fact, he is lower than the lowest. From being the honored one, Job is now the despised one. And he describes the people who are despising him. Chapter 30, verse 1 again. But now they mock me, men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me, since their vigor had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched land in desolate wastelands at night. In the brush, They gathered salt herbs and their food was the root of the broom bush. They were banished from human society, shouted at as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in the dry stream beds, among the rocks and in holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes and huddled in the undergrowth. A base and nameless brood, they were driven out of the land. The people Job is describing here are the scum of the earth. They're not just despised people, they are genuinely despicable people. It's important to see that. Yes, these people are destitute and they're outcasts, 
but they are not honorable outcasts. These are not the innocent victims of a cruel society Job's describing. Verse 8 tells us about their character. It tells us they are base. It means wicked. And they are nameless, meaning they have no good reputation. In chapter 29, Job described his own efforts to help the poor, the needy, and the stranger. But this is a different group. One writer says, these people are at the bottom of the heap because they deserve to be. Except they're not right at the bottom of the heap. There is someone even lower than these people. Job is at the very bottom. He's even lower than the lowest. Look at verse 9. And now those young men mock me in song. I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Christopher Ashe says, Job is an outcast even among the outcasts. Here is a man who by character ought to be right at the top, but experiences the indignity of being right at the bottom. Does that remind you of anyone else? Another dearly loved friend of God. When the New Testament describes Jesus hanging on a cross, it tells us that beside him there were two genuine criminals. Men who were being justly punished for their crimes. And yet one of those men hurls insults at Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross, The highest one was becoming the utterly humiliated one. Lower than the lowest. A base criminal did not hesitate to despise him. And long, long before Jesus, the life of Job was teaching us. Sometimes this is how God works. Sometimes this is how God achieves powerful things. Human wisdom calls this kind of thing foolishness. Could there be any meaning at all in this kind of thing? How could there be any good purpose at all in this? But in fact, this is the outworking of God's perfect wisdom. That was the case in Job's situation. It was the case in Jesus' situation. And we have to realize it may be the case in your situation and in mine. Isn't that part of what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me? Isn't this what the New Testament is talking about when it says God's servants fill up in their flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Maybe you've come across that a few times in the New Testament. It occurs a few times. That's how the Apostle Paul describes his own sufferings. 
I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What does he mean? Was Jesus' death not enough? It was enough to pay for our sins, yes. But God's purposes are not over. God is still at work in this world. And he still makes use of undeserved suffering. That's what Paul's saying. The pattern we have seen in Job and in Jesus continues. It continued on in Paul's life. And it may make an appearance in my life and yours. God still accomplishes powerful things through the suffering of his beloved servants. And when that happens, you and I seldom can make any sense of the details. We do not know why this, why me, why now. But when we look at Job and Jesus and Paul, we know we are on a well-traveled path. A path where God works out his wise and good purposes through the dark experiences of his people. In God's wisdom, Job and Jesus became lower than the lowest. And in their time of greatest need, they find themselves unanswered by God. In verses 11 to 19, Job describes how the scum of the earth not only detest him and spit on him, he says they actively persecute and attack him. And in that situation, Job does what any servant of God would do. He calls to God for help. Verse 20, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up but you merely look at me. One writer says, here's a man who prays as he has never prayed before. And his prayers are met with silence from heaven. Sometimes God's people testify that when they've gone through times of suffering, those have been precious times for them. They're able to say that times of great pain or great loss became times of special fellowship with God. Some people are able to say that the toughest times were also times of sensing God was particularly close to them in their lives. That can be our experience in suffering. But not always. Have you ever prayed at a particularly difficult time and been met with silence from heaven? Have you ever brought desperate petitions to God and received no answer? Not even a sense of reassurance. Have you ever felt God just closed the door when you needed him most? Job had that experience. 
so did Jesus. The New Testament tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was facing the cross, he prayed, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. The cup was the cup of suffering. That prayer went unanswered. And on the cross, a few hours later, Jesus cried in an even more desperate way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, there was no answer. There was no deliverance from heaven. Not even a word of reassurance from heaven. Just darkness and silence. Job experienced it. Jesus experienced it. You and I might experience it too. And if we do, we have to remember this. God does hear. He does care. If God does not answer us, it's because he is achieving something glorious. And the price of that glorious thing is that for a time our prayers go unanswered. That was true in Job's life, it was true in Jesus, and it may be true in your life and mine. I want to underline this with words from someone else. Let them sink in as I read these. Someone has said that when our prayers go unanswered by God, it is because God is doing something so ultimately wonderful that unanswered prayer is the necessary price of achieving it. When God remains silent in answer to our urgent cries, it is not that he does not hear but rather that it is somehow necessary for us to cry in vain and wait in hope until he achieves in us and in his world what he wills to achieve. That is a hard thing for us to grasp. It's an even harder thing for you and me to accept. When our prayers go unanswered, it is hard to trust that God is doing something good. But it was true in Job's case. It was true in Jesus' case. It is how God often works in the lives of his beloved servants. And so will you trust God can work that way in your life too? Will you trust that he can allow you to suffer and allow you to feel forsaken even while he loves you? Like he loves his one and only son. Will you trust that God works for your good even through your deepest distress? There's one more thing for us to notice in this passage. In the rest of chapter 30, Job underlines his desolation. But in chapter 31, there's a change. 
He turns from focusing on how the highest one has become the humiliated one. And now he explains how the faithful one is treated as unfaithful. Look at chapter 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked? Disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every step? If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales. He will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. Job says in verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Covenant is a very important word in the Old Testament and the New. In fact, it was important across the ancient world, not just among the Israelites. And we know that Job himself was not an Israelite. A covenant is a solemn and binding commitment, a promise. And the catch is with a covenant, there are penalties or sanctions for breaking it. If you didn't do what you had committed to do, you were punished. That punishment was made very clear ahead of time, before you even entered into the covenant. And here Job's point is, I made a covenant, a solemn and binding commitment. And I'm being treated like a covenant breaker. I'm getting the punishment But I haven't broken the covenant. That's the point of this whole chapter. But before we go on, it's important to notice the kind of covenant Job entered into. He says it was a covenant with his eyes. In other words, it was not just about outward behavior. It's also about the longings of his heart. In verse 1, Job mentions not looking lustfully at a young woman. And the rest of the chapter makes clear there was more to the covenant than just that. But I think here at the start, he mentions lust as an example. Because lusting after someone is a longing of the heart. And when you're married to somebody else, it's an illegitimate longing of the heart. So Job is saying, I made a solemn and binding commitment not only to behave with purity, but to have a pure heart. A clear conscience before God. Not just to look good in front of other people, but to be pure before God. The one who sees our hearts as well as our lives. But remember, Job's point is, I'm experiencing the punishment due to a covenant breaker. But I've been a covenant keeper. The rest of the chapter is a careful analysis of Job's life. He lists area after area. And in each area, he says, his life will stand up to close scrutiny. He denies that he's broken the covenant. He keeps using the word if all the way through. If I'd committed adultery, 
that would make me worthy of punishment. But I haven't committed adultery. If I'd mistreated my employees, that would make me worthy of punishment. But I haven't mistreated my employees. Taking advantage of the weak and defenseless, that would make me worthy of punishment. But I haven't done it. Nor have I fallen into idolatry. I did not worship all that wealth that I had. It was never my God. In fact, nothing in my life took the place of the one true God. I never gloated over the downfall of my enemies. I was never guilty of hypocrisy. Notice down in verse 33. Job does not claim he was without sin. He says, I didn't conceal my sin. When it happened, I confessed it and turned from it. Verse 33 says, If I have concealed my sin, as people do, by hiding guilt in my heart. And as throughout this chapter he's saying, I haven't done it. In Hebrew, the word Adam means man. And it was also the name of the first man. So in verse 33, Job is either saying, I didn't conceal my sin as mankind does, or he could be saying very specifically, I didn't conceal my sin as Adam did. In other words, I have broken the pattern that started with Adam. I lived a life that's open to God. And so, he sums it up in verse 35, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. Job believed that his life would stand up to the closest scrutiny. He wants God to give an answer as to why Job, the covenant keeper, is being treated as a covenant breaker. Now, in weeks to come, we will see Job gets his meeting with God. And he will end up with a more humble attitude than he shows here. But nevertheless, this book has told us God does view Job as blameless. Job is a covenant keeper. He is faithful. And yet he's been treated as unfaithful. He is suffering the punishment of a covenant breaker. And in that, Job's life is teaching us the wisdom of the cross. The wisdom of God that looks like foolishness to human beings. The wisdom of God that becomes a stumbling block to many people. How could God allow a faithful man to be treated as unfaithful? How could he allow a covenant keeper to be punished as a covenant breaker? The answer is, it's one of the ways God accomplishes powerful things. We see it here with Job, because we know from chapter 1, Job's faithfulness in the midst of suffering means a defeat for Satan. And Job is part of a pattern in God's work. 
He may work this way in your life and mine. And he worked this way supremely in the life of Jesus. Jesus was the perfect covenant keeper. The absolutely faithful one. The one who truly broke the pattern of Adam's sin. The one who brought about Satan's ultimate defeat. And that was accomplished when God allowed the highest one to become the humiliated one. Brought low until he was lower than the lowest. Unanswered by God at Gethsemane and on the cross. Satan was defeated and our slavery to sin was broken when God allowed the perfectly faithful one to be treated as unfaithful. We know God achieved something great at the cross. Something eternally powerful and wonderful. So then... Will you trust that God does other wonderful things using the same pattern? Will you trust that God is doing something powerful through your suffering? You can't see what it is. Of course you can't. But you do know about Job. You do know about Jesus. You know their suffering was part of God's wisdom. So will you trust that your suffering is too? God says to us, My faithful suffering servants, have you considered my servant Job? Have you considered my servant Jesus? Can I not show similar wisdom and power in your suffering? Can your suffering not play a part in my eternal purposes? Will you trust that it does? Will you trust me even if for now I do not answer your desperate prayers and your cries for deliverance? In a moment we're going to gather around this table which is a table of suffering. That's what it represents. A broken body and shed blood. The next song we're going to sing will lead us into that. But it's also a chance for us to respond to what we've just heard. So I'd encourage you to use this as an opportunity to acknowledge that God's power and wisdom are seen in all of 